Paul writes in this passage, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kentria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my, favorite, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Tertius, who wrote this letter, Greet in the Lord, yeah, greet you in the Lord. Or I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. And then in some versions we read again that um, the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. So reads the Word of God. And I think with a few more readings, I could have done even better with it. But so be it. This is an amazing text of Scripture. You know, when I was a senior in high school, our Christian Academy, in its 11th year of existence, played for the first time in the Ohio High School Athletic Association State Soccer Tournament. Prior to that, we'd only competed with Christian schools, but we were a strong team. We felt like it was time to step up and play with the big boys, and so we did that. We won in overtime against an Akron City powerhouse, and that filled us with all sorts of confidence. And when we played in the state quarterfinals against one of the top-seeded schools, I was going to say the top-seeded school, but I can't remember that with certainty, but one of the top four, and we tied them two to two but they advanced in penalty kicks. So we got together as a team and decided to go ahead and play in the Christian School State Tournament as late entrants. We had one more day when we could actually declare that we were going to play in that tournament, and so we did. And we won that one, scoring 14 goals over the next three games while holding our opponents scoreless. 
And it wasn't as satisfying as it would have been to win the public school tournament, but it was still a pretty satisfying set of victories. It was good just because, honestly, ahead of anything else, it gave us the opportunity to play three more games together. And that's the part that we really loved. That summer, we entered ourselves into a competitive men's league in Akron, and we won that championship as well without a coach on the sidelines. We just managed each other, and we loved playing soccer, and we loved playing together, so we played it wherever we could. So any opportunity, really, to get together and do that was enough for us. And even though each of us now has gone on to long involvements in many other areas, business and medicine, law, education, ministry, we shared an experience as young men, we shared an experience as boys, really, that just bonded us for life with one another. I'm honestly saddened for those who've never had the privilege of being part of some sort of team, whether athletic or academic or in the arts or even the military. I don't believe classroom instruction on a secondary level, listen closely to this, this is an important statement, I don't believe classroom education on a secondary level can compete with the holistic education and enculturation that results from participating in team competition at that age, especially when there's some success. But in many ways, even when there isn't success, and those of you who have played on such teams know exactly what I'm talking about. I actually remember and appreciate just the thinking about that team. Remember some words that Ray Glinsky said that made both of us chuckle and still make me chuckle even when I'm alone. He said, you know what? The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> but fortunately, this is chronicled now, so... When we think about that kind of bonding, what happens on an athletic field when a team plays together and, and finds that plural unity operating with one mind, functioning together? I believe that's what we're seeing. I believe that's what we're being drawn into here in Romans 16. Paul isn't just being nice here, mentioning people's names so they'll feel special when this letter is read in church. But he is doing that. He's not just beginning to build a team for his next stage of ministry. But he's doing that as well. He's not just spotlighting how unified he and his team already are in Christ with this church in Rome. But he's also doing that. He's reveling in the richness of human relationship within the context of the highest possible human pursuit. Let me say that again. He's reveling in the richness of human relationship within the context of the highest possible human pursuit. We might even say the greatest possible human competition, which is the advance of the gospel against the fiercest of all foes, the ultimate opponent himself, who's mentioned explicitly here in verse 20. And the net result is that he's feeling the fullness and celebrating the joy of team unity in pursuit of an outcome of unparalleled worth, of a championship beyond all comparison. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 16. The theme statement that I've proposed for this passage is gospel partnership with like-minded people is as sweet and bonding as it is essential to fulfilling our calling, to fulfilling our mission, 
Gospel partnership with like-minded people is as sweet and bonding as it is essential to fulfilling our calling, to fulfilling our mission. Put a bit differently, God always intended world evangelization to be a group project, a team effort. It was always so. The assignments given was first given to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's where we first see this particular charge given. Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Before the fall, that was accomplished just by birthing and enculturating the next generation. There's no gospel to spread. The enjoyment of God was there. Celebrating Him, His glory, worshiping Him as the creator of all. But as we know, tragically, early in the story, Adam and Eve failed in that calling. As we've seen in this study and been reminded, that responsibility was then given to Israel through the calling of Abraham. That calling of filling the earth with worshipers. The prophet Isaiah said it perhaps most clearly and concisely in Isaiah 42. He said, quoting God, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Listen to this one. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I love that. And then he finishes, a light to the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in the darkness of their sin. There was Israel's mission. A light to the nations. But Israel also failed. That's why we celebrate Advent with light. Jesus comes into the world as the light in the darkness. Jesus took on this mission and he succeeded where the others failed. He succeeded in modeling for his followers in thought and in word and in deed what it, what it looks like to be God's servant. To use language that's familiar to us, what it looks like to live and proclaim the gospel with authenticity and passion. Jesus modeled it. Such that once he made provision for the cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation to God of all of his people as one body in him, he then charged them to take this message to the ends of the earth, what we call the Great Commission, from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. To go out and fill the earth with worshipers. To fill the earth and subdue it. My friends, I think that's what Paul is doing here in essence in Romans 16. At the end of this glorious proclamation of the gospel and then a rehearsal of all that it does within us to change us into the likeness of Christ, he's now getting this group ready to go out and do the work. That's what Paul is doing here. He's unifying his team, his team, with the Roman church toward evangelizing the world. Now, I want to pause right here for a minute and just give you, in essence, what this whole chapter is about. Doug Moo gave a, a, a wonderful summary. Paul does essentially six particular things in this section. Then as we progress through it, we're just going to pick and choose in order to appreciate how to read and understand and use a passage like this, all right? But lest we get caught in that kind of a, a look and forget what the chapter is about altogether, this isn't on the screen, but just listen. Paul does essentially six particular things in this section. Number one, he commends to this church a sister in the Lord, Phoebe, Number two, he urges the Roman Christians to greet various of their number and one another. Third, he sends greetings to this church from others. Fourth, he warns them about false teachers. You heard that as we read. 
Fifth, he assures them of final spiritual victory over that ultimate opponent we mentioned. And then sixth, he prays that the grace of our Lord Jesus might be with them. And that sounds so much like the conclusion of the Great Commission. I will be with you to the very end of the age. And Paul is giving a blessing to this church in a very similar way. So those are the six things that are going on. But in essence, as we've said, what we're focusing on is that he's unifying his team with this church toward world evangelization. That's how we're thinking of Romans 16. And that's just what the church has been doing ever since. This is very much a great commission passage of Scripture. What we've been doing ever since, pressing hard and deep into our union with Christ, and therefore our union with one another, such that we're not just motivated, but, but mobilized towards sharing the gospel worldwide. We see it as our calling, and that it's a team effort, and we're in this together. And that the grace of God is upon us to do it. To be motivated and mobilized to share the gospel worldwide in celebration of its fruits and in praise of God's glory. So let's see how this is so. Let's look into this text and see what we can do. We're going to essentially, well, we recognize that it comes in three sections, and so we're going to move through those three sections together, and they are listed in your bulletin, although they might be harder to find today with a little bit extra information in there. But it's a very simple outline. First of all, greetings to beloved ones. Those are the first 16 verses. And then warnings about divisive ones, verses 17 to 20. And then greetings from beloved ones to finish it out in 21 to 24. So let's just walk through this and see what we can learn and appreciate from this text. To begin this long list, Paul gives first, and, and really unprecedentedly extended attention to one woman. He says in verse 1, I commend to you, that is to the church in Rome, our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kentria. Kentria is just about eight miles from Corinth. So Paul may have known her well since he spent a year and a half in that city. The word servant here has a wide range of usage. Paul described himself and his team as servants, using this word many times. But the word is diakonos. The word is one we're familiar with. Deacon. So it's also an office in the church. And the question is then, how does Paul intend us to understand that here? How is he talking about Phoebe here? And I would say that the inclusion of the church where Phoebe served here suggests that she held that office in that church. We spent a fair amount of time with this passage as a body of believers, and it was just interesting to me to come at this fresh and not even be looking at it from the perspective of evaluating that, but just seeing in the text, how does this work? And I actually do believe the most natural way to read this is to understand Phoebe as having filled that office in the church in Kentria. Commentators also seem pretty agreed about the fact that she was the one who delivered the letter. That's why she's getting this prominent first place attention in this chapter 16. She's probably one that delivered to the letter to Rome, and some suggest that she was probably even the one who read it to the church at Rome. So her role here is significant and deserving of the extended attention that Paul gave it. He just wanted to make sure that this church knew, verse 2, to welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to help her in whatever way she may need from them. For she has been a patron of many, Paul says here. She's often then extended the same sort of welcome that he's calling for. She's extended it to others. And then Paul adds, and to myself as well. So this is a woman of means probably who was able to provide hospitality and other needed goods and services for gospel travelers who visited the area around Kentria. So Paul wanted to make sure that she experienced the same as she was traveling on church business in Rome. 
He wanted her treated the same way that she has treated others. And you can appreciate the fact that he gave such attention to that at the beginning of this list where so many are just mentioned by a phrase or a quick descriptor. From there then, Paul launches into almost a rhythmic pattern here. 16 sentences in a row that begin with the second person plural imperative, greet. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. So 16 times in a row with the second person plural imperative, greet. Why do I point out the grammar? What difference does the grammar make? Well, I think the grammar is significant as it anchors in to this letter to Romans. I mention it because Paul isn't directly greeting these people himself. This is a command, second person, you greet. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. He's telling the church to greet these people. He isn't greeting them directly. And in so doing, I think he's fueling what he has made such a big deal out of over the past few chapters, namely, welcome one another. He's telling this church that how he wants them relating to one another, and now as he's extending his greetings, he's doing so in a way that makes that happen. And it's a long list. There are 26 individuals, two families, and three house churches mentioned over the next few verses. It's a lot of people on Paul's list. The only other place where we see anything like this is at the end of Colossians, in verses 7 to 17, where there's more of an extended greeting section. But it's interesting to note that that's the other church to which Paul wrote, never having visited them prior. So there could be a point here that Paul is making. He really wants them to understand that they are one in him. And he's giving extra attention to the individuals that are the linkage between them as he's writing to this church. So let's browse through this list and see what we can see that's of some interest here, all right? Who we might know from other passages of Scripture or from other situations. But as we do, I want you to notice the slight shift. And this one's harder to see. I, I don't know that I would have seen this without some commentators pointing at it. And as I look at it, it's like, I think I could see that, but not positive, but it's worth mentioning. Notice the slight shift at verse 8 where Paul moves from people he knows well to, to people he may know only casually or perhaps even only by reputation. There are some exceptions, but it appears as though he's gone from the ones he knows just to the ones that he knows would have a significant role in linking his team with this church. Also, commentators notice, note that most of these are Gentile names that he lists, suggesting that that was the majority culture in the Roman church. So they're having a Jew-Gentile issue, but it appears as though the church is primarily Gentile, with some Jews in and among them, and some of the other things we can know from history and even from Luke's record in Acts, that we'll get into in a few moments, suggest that that was probably true as well. There was a time where the Jews were commanded to leave Rome so there would have been a smaller number in the church there. Also, most of them, you can discern from the nature of the names, were likely either present or freed slaves that were part of this church and part of the Gentile population. So just a couple of things as we get started. Let's, let's walk through some that are in the list here now. First is Prisca and Aquila, and that's a good place to start because they are familiar to us, and any reader of Scripture recognizes this couple, Prisca being short for Priscilla. This is the couple from Rome whom Paul met in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and they came to Corinth at the time that I just mentioned, the time when the Emperor Claudius commanded all Jews to leave Rome. Acts 18, verse 2 gives us that little tidbit. And when Paul got to town, that is, when he got to Corinth, he went to see Prisca and Aquila, and he stayed with them, the text records in Acts 18.3, and worked with them because they all had the same trade. They also were tent makers. So while in Corinth, Paul was laboring with this couple, uh, doing their secular work and doing their gospel ministry work. And evidently that relationship really continued because they then accompanied Paul to Ephesus when he went on there, Stopping, interestingly, Acts 18, verses 18 and 19, stopping in Kentria for a haircut because a vow had come to an end. Is that the time where Paul met Phoebe? We don't know, but 
he may have already known her and surely that relationship if already established would have been appreciated there as they stop in that town to finish a vow and how thankful are we for Luke for just including little details like that that help us put together our scriptures in so much more personal a way He then went, uh, Paul then went to Corinth and was likely there. I'm sorry, um, I, I jumped ahead too far. After that, Paul left for home. He went back to uh, the area north of Jerusalem there. And Apollos uh, came in to Corinth where Prisca and Aquila were. And he was an eloquent speaker, Acts 18 records. But this couple was actually able to help him grow in his understanding of the faith. And some of that is told in Luke's record. And then he, Apollos, actually went on to Corinth and was likely there when Paul arrived in Corinth from Ephesus on his third missionary journey after he came back from the Judean region. And so it's quite, <clears throat> excuse me, it's quite possible that, court, that um, Apollos was there in um, Corinth with Paul as he wrote this very letter to Rome. But those are just some of the connections. And trust me, I give an extra couple of minutes there because those are the only ones that have that much detail to them. This couple, Prisca and Aquila, back to them, Paul says about them, this couple that had been so interwoven with his life and ministry and with the life and ministry of other associates. He adds here, though, verse 4, that they risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. The way this is put, it sounds like Prisca and Aquila saved his life, that they were the means by which Paul's life was spared. That's why he not only gives them thanks, but the church of the Gentiles do, because apart from their work, he would not have brought the gospel to those churches. So it sounds like they saved his life, and although we're not sure when that happened, it surely seems like it may have been during that riot in Ephesus that got so out of hand, recorded in such detail in Acts 19. Again, just interesting things to help us put our Bibles together and see the human element of it that is included. Regardless, Paul's next greeting is to the church that meets in their house, in the house of Prisca and Aquila. Again, this likely indicates that they were people of means, but Paul isn't spotlighting them for that reason. Greet Prisca and Aquila because they're wealthy. That's not it. That's not how he talks anywhere and surely not here. He's not spotlighting them for that reason. Think of it more as we do with our flocks gatherings. Who, who has room to host the flock in their house? Let's meet there. No conversation about net worth or privilege is a part of that at all. When a flock group is deciding where to meet, they're just looking for a space that's big enough to hold them. And Prisca and Aquila's house is big enough to hold them. And so Paul, as he's greeting them, says, by the way, greet the church that meets in their home, showing that he was aware that there was a church that meets in their home and that he wanted those folks to be linked in with this warm and personal greeting. Next is Epinetus, who was the first convent to Christ in Asia, Paul says there in verse 5. How would you like to have that claim to fame? That's, that's recorded on the pages of Scripture. This man evidently was the first convert in Asia. And regardless, though, Ephesus is in Asia. It's perhaps mentioned here next because it's quite possible that he was brought to saving faith through the ministry of Prisca and Aquila. So they, Paul moves on there. The next one that we see in verse 6 is Mary, a familiar name. A lot of work done on it because of the familiarity of that name, but we don't know who she is. And while Mary was a common Jewish name, it was also one that was used among the Gentiles. So really, not only we not know who she is, we don't really even know her ethnicity. But she know, we know that she was a faithful servant in the church. And Paul lists her here with this group. Neither do we know Andronicus and Junia, verse 7. And there's a little confusion there because Junia could be an abbreviation for a masculine name, Junianus. But Junia on its own is also a feminine name. We have some names that work that way even in English. 
So because of how they're listed here together, it may be that this is another married couple. Just a, a hint, again, at how to read these texts. When you get two names linked together, it's quite possible that they're supposed to go together. But they're definitely Jewish. That's what Paul means when he identifies them as his kinsmen. We saw that language back in chapter 9. We see it coming back here a couple of times. That's what he means. He's not talking about these are relatives. He's talking about the fact that these are Jewish folks as well. So Andronicus and Junia were fellow Jews, but they were also, beyond that, fellow prisoners. These folks had suffered for the gospel. So though we don't know who they are, we can be grateful for their work, knowing that Paul was, and knowing that it cost them something. It's starting to get to be a familiar theme here, but we don't know any of the folk in verses 8 through 11. None of them with certainty. But we should note that Paul's use of my beloved throughout this section, verse 5, verse 8, verse 9, verse 12, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're dear friends, but just that they are fellow faithful believers. And so they are his beloved because they will be brothers and sisters for all eternity. Also here, a couple times mentioned, the family of Aristobulus, verse 10, the family of Narcissus, verse 11, rather than the man himself in each case, not greetings to Aristobulus and to Narcissus, but to the family of each. That suggests that they may have been unbelievers with believers, perhaps even believing slaves, in their home. That's one of the things you can pick up from reading carefully a passage like this. But it also could mean that they were deceased, but that their homes still bore their names. So as you begin looking into things, you can see a bit more detail about the life circumstances of different ones. And as you do that, especially with Aristobulus, there are some who think that this Aristobulus may actually have been the grandson of Herod the Great. So the brother of King Agrippa I. Because it was known that this Aristobulus lived and died in Rome as a private citizen, and the next reference that comes in verse 11 to Herodian lends weight to that possibility since the Herods aren't actually associated with Rome. But even so, there's just no way to be certain of that. But that just tells you when you start pressing on some of these details, they actually do go somewhere. And you can start reading about that and understand who some of these people may have been that were part of this community at that time. When we get to verse 12 here and see Trophena and Trophosa, it's quite possible that these two are sisters. These are feminine names. Their names actually come from the word that means delicate or, or dainty. So it seems like Paul may have been aiming at irony when he wrote that these two, together with Persis, and we can think this is associated only with her, but it's actually probably with all three. She's another woman. But each of these, he says, worked hard in the Lord. There's a direct contrast that's going on here between their names and what they're actually worth in the community of believers. Rufus is next, verse 13. This could be the son of Simon the Cyrene who carried the cross of Jesus because Mark, for some reason, includes Rufus's name when he mentions Simon the Cyrene in Mark 15, verse 21, that he had a son named Rufus. It's possible that this is that Rufus, although again, not sh sure, but calling him here the chosen of the Lord seems to set him apart in some unique ways, as does the warm mention of his mother and of her relationship to Paul. She's mothered me as well, Paul says. But again, that's not something we can be sure of. It's just something we can note. And I mention all these things just so that we'll be better equipped to read a passage like this to hear these details, to pick up on them, and to follow them. Paul then finishes this section. I'm sure you're not sad to finish this section. Paul finishes this section, verse 16, with a very familiar charge. We see it in a number of other places. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Thessalonians 5, Peter in 1 Peter 5. This charge to greet one another with a holy kiss. That was a characteristic of the Christian community in the first century. Some even go so far as to say that it made its way into the Sunday liturgy. 
such that it was like the passing of the peace in some traditions of the church uh, that we still know today. So there was some portion where the kiss would go down the aisle among those who were present. But a warm and personal greeting, a sign of family intimacy that is captured by that beautiful image, barely touched by the handshake in our day, maybe a little bit more so by the hug. But wow, it's not hard to see on the pages of Scripture that this expression from one Christian to another was characteristic of the love that the family of Christ has for one another. And then this final statement, all the churches of Christ greet you. It's unusual. Um, But it seems like one final effort, actually, just to loop this church in with all that Paul had started from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, the way he said in chapter 15. Toward participating together in the spread of the gospel. Glad we read Colossians 1 this morning because I was going to use that description. Participating together in the spread of the gospel to all creation under heaven. Those are the closing words of the confession that we just read together, and that's exactly what Paul is working toward. That's what we have to appreciate. This is a locker room speech to a team. I heard somebody say earlier this week, and I wish I could remember, and I'd give you credit, but that this is the greatest support letter of all time. Maybe it's a support letter. That feels a little mercenary to me. I think Paul's doing something a little less just personal. Yes, he's getting himself ready to go to Spain. And he's drawing together these people to do it. But there is benefit to the body of Christ being unified that will bless each and every one of them, not just Paul as he goes to Spain. The whole church will be better off as they are strengthened in their understanding of their unity with one another and about the fact that they are on the same team playing for the same goal even when they are separated from one another, having sent off different ones among them to represent the truth in the different places of Christ's calling. Well, that finishes section one. We won't spend nearly as much time with section two because there's not nearly as much detail about it. But we do have to note then, as soon as that statement is made about all the churches greet you, there is a sudden and dramatic shift Right in the middle of all of that warm and lengthy listing of special friends and associates comes a stark and direct and specific and and unprecedented in terms of Paul's other letters appeal, warning, we call it, about divisive ones. Verse 17, a warning to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught likely meaning then that these are doctrinal obstacles. Be careful of those that sow doctrinal discord in the church. False teaching, false doctrine. Paul is saying, don't give it an ear. Similar warning to what he gave to the Ephesian elders, it would appear. And here, his word, clear, crisp, avoid them. Don't follow them. Leave them alone. Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Wow, that's direct. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. That's actually harder to translate than you might think, but I think simply put, it's they work to satisfy their own desires. They don't work to fulfill the heart of God. And by smooth talk, he continues in verse 18, and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I don't think we should hear this so much to mean that they deceive the hearts of the doctrinally unrooted, of the immature from the Ephesians 4 sense, but they deceive the hearts of anyone who lets the warmth of family relationship in the church lure them into forgetting that there's still a powerful and invisible enemy of the church in the world. An enemy beyond the individual and collective sinfulness of all of us together. There is an enemy to the church who's seeking to bring down the work of Christ. And the church, even with all this family unity, needs to remember that. 
We hear this as Paul continues in verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. So he's saying, you're actually strong in the faith. He's not talking to the naive as though they, they can't tell the difference in true and false doctrine. He's saying, for your obedience is known to all and I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You, you hear that, hear Jesus' words in that statement. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. What Paul is saying here is not that I want you to know evil. I don't want you to know evil. I don't want you to experience evil. But I also don't want you to forget that it exists and that it always threatens to invade the warm family fellowship in the church during these troubled days as we continue living under the reign of Adam, even while we're enjoying the inbreaking of the reign of Christ, we are still vulnerable. Keep your eyes open and don't be swayed. And as we press on in this pursuit, two promises then come with it. As we press on in this pursuit, two promises come with it one in eternity, the other in time. First in eternity. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's that opponent who will be defeated. Our enemy will be defeated in the end. That's the first one. Then the second, we've already spotlighted, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of God be with you all along the way, enabling your endurance. Finally then, Paul sends greetings from his team to this body. Timothy first, his closest associate, co-author of six of his 13 letters, primary recipient of two more of them, so figuring prominently in eight of Paul's 13 letters, not counting a greeting like this one, including, included to the Romans. So he's the first. Lucius is the next. Perhaps Lucius of Cyrene, one of those five prophets and teachers from the church at Antioch that sent off Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13. Jason is next, a, a close associate from Thessalonica, one with whom Paul stayed, one who also knew some suffering in that city, Acts 17, verses 5 to 9. Sosipater, also known as Sopater the Berean, Acts 20. All kinsmen, Paul includes here, verse 21. So they're all Jewish brothers. And if the identifications that I just gave you here are true, this was quite possibly a delegation from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia who were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem, remember? This is possibly a delegation from each of those churches to travel with Paul and deliver the offering to their brothers and sisters in Judea. So this would be the group that is receiving a greeting from Paul before he even gets to Rome. There in verse 21. 22, Tertius, as we said before, we don't know this person, but he was clearly Paul's secretary. And what a sweet addition he makes here. Can you imagine the conversation when either he asked or Paul affirmed that he should express his own greeting to the church. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So this is Paul's secretary who's taking dictation. Can you imagine the apostle Paul turning to him and saying, why don't you say hi to him? Or he's so swept up in what's happening at this point that he just says to Paul, can I greet them as well? Nobody knows me, but... I'd like to greet this church. Which was it? We don't know, but this is an unprecedented move. We don't see this elsewhere. We don't know any other of Paul's secretaries who are extending personal greetings to the church. It is a warm moment in this letter, a simple little verse, but one that brings the human equation just flooding into our presence. As we think of this guy who gets to write in Holy Scripture, I greet you as well. Gaius was likely the Gaius from Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1, the one who baptized. 
not the Gaius from Derby, Acts 20, or from Ephesus, 3 John 1. Because this letter was written from Corinth, so it's probably Gaius from Corinth. Erastus is likely the one that Paul sent with Timothy from Ephesus to Macedonia in Acts 19. Quartus, we don't know at all. And then if your version has verse 24 in it, it is not in the original manuscripts. It's in the margin in the ESV. I think it's present on the page in New American Standard. But really, there's, this is not one of those that's troubling because it repeats what we just heard from back in verse 20. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And with that, Paul closes this section before the final statement that we'll look at, God willing, next Sunday. So what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn from all of this? First of all, as we spotlight two lessons, remember today's theme first. Gospel partnership with like-minded people is as sweet and bonding as it is essential to fulfilling our mission. Remembering that, two lessons. One, we need each other. We need each other. People aren't extraneous. We don't just appreciate and love one another. We need one another. Scripture says it is not good that man should be alone. In fact, Scripture records the Lord God said that. And this is just what it means. Marriage is a great application but it's saying that human beings, image-bearing creatures, were made to live in community. We need each other. We were made to live in community. We were made to work in community. We were made to thrive in community. We can get so used to celebrating successful individuals as though they act alone. We see end-zone dances of some form in virtually every vocation where individuals are spotlighted, but no running back ever got into the end zone without blockers, and no receiver ever got there without a quarterback and blockers. We've run into the one another's of Scripture often, several right here in Romans chapter 12, chapter 14, 15, right here in chapter 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we need to embrace those one another's. I would say we need to ingest those one another's because we need one another. And as we read through Romans 16, we get a clear and hefty dose of that. Men and women, Jew and Gentile, people are not extraneous. That's lesson one. Again, remembering the theme, gospel partnership with like-minded people is as sweet and bonding as it is essential to fulfilling our mission. Lesson number two, that bond brings joy. That bond brings joy. We need one another, and the bond that is formed is a joyful bond. As we worship together, as we serve together, as we fellowship together, as we advance the gospel, build God's kingdom together, we're bound together as one body of Christ in that process. And that bond brings joy. We were made for it. It's not good for us to be alone. This association is what we were made for. It's what the gospel is supposed to produce in us. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down among us in the gospel. We're made one, brought together under the headship of Christ. It's that love for one another which is born of our love for God that only God can bring about in us through the gospel. That's what it produces in us. And when God does that in and among a people, it's unmistakable. It catches the world's attention. Jesus said to his disciples, it's your love for one another that will convince the world 
that you are my followers. That's the distinctive characteristic. And we see that in this lengthy list of friends and associates from Paul. And we're seeing it right here, I would say, among us. We're tasting of this. We're seeing it. One of the reasons it's worth giving such time to this chapter. We're seeing it right here among us. As we do life together in Christ, as Grace Church of DuPage. As we continue pressing on to to know a deeper and deeper life together in Him. We see it on new levels. We experience it in new and refreshing, joyful ways. And our love for one another, our care for one another, our unity with one another, our support for one another, our willingness to welcome one another. That's the bond of the gospel, and that's being celebrated in this chapter. And friends, that bond brings joy. I would say to finish today that there's just nothing like playing together when you truly love your teammates and when you truly love the game. That's what we're doing together to the praise of God's glory we got a little taste of it from Romans 16. Wouldn't you love to see the chapter that could be written about this season with this body? How that would work. We need one another. And that bond brings joy. Let's pray, shall we? And as I pray, as we're going to help serve communion, please come to the front along with the musicians. Father, this is a remarkably detailed text. Scripture, and yet it is also almost in some ways an inaccessible text of Scripture. But taken all together within the context of this letter, it just breathes life. It blows with the wind of the Spirit. What a joy it is to see these names that meant so much to Paul these names that meant so much to one another and to recognize that we could fill in our own list of names from the body of believers that you've made us a part of here in much the same way that, that you are with this list from Romans 16. So Father, I pray that you would do that work among us and I pray that you would do it in no small measure through our observance of this sign of our unity and of our belonging as one body of Christ, remembering the body and blood of Jesus that has saved us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.